We're uh, going to talk today on John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. We've been in the book of John, kind of plowing through there. Uh, just, for, I don't know about you, I'm having a blast. I'm enjoying it. It's convicting and it's joyful and full of awe and wonder. And so we're going to talk about true worship. That's John 14, 16 to 26. So I want to read that passage. You can follow along. If you have your Bible, you can follow along on your, on your app. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. Now, this is the, the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus has run into by coincidence and uh, in this continuing conversation with her. In verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You know, it's, it's uh, interesting to me um, how... And we see this in the Bible, how people sometimes can believe and yet not really be committed. Um, I think there's a not want to commit to him. I think there's some good evidence. We're going to get to this some as we get later in the book of John, that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they may have recognized, they may have recognized that Jesus really was the Messiah, but they didn't want to give up something. They knew if he's the Messiah, they recognized what that would mean for them, how it would change their lives and it wasn't what they wanted. Now, we can criticize them, but this happens today. This happened in my life. When, when I saw God working in my family, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but when my, one of my brothers got saved, I was stunned by this and didn't understand it. And then my mom got saved. And then there's three boys. And then my oldest brother got saved. And that was, that was a big... T- big thing for me. I, I really looked up to my oldest brother. I thought he was awesome. I, I, li- I like to follow him. I like to learn from, you know, I just wanted to be like him. And he became a Christian. And I was, I was so upset. I was so disappointed. And, and I've, I've mentioned this before. I, I can remember in my room and going, I will not follow you. And you know, when you think about that, what a crazy thing to say. What a crazy thing to shake your fist at God. Because what you're doing is you're admitting there is a God who, if there really is a God, he deserves to be followed. He deserves to be worshiped. And you're saying, I see you, and I don't want you, or I hate you. I will. And, and, and that was very much in the forefront of my mind. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you in my life. You see, I kind of believed, but I wasn't willing to commit. And there's a huge difference there. Because committing then involves cost. Committing then involves uh, whatever it takes to follow whoever you are. I knew, I knew that if I followed God, it meant that I would change. And I didn't want to. And I've thought about this for a long time. What was it that was holding me back? And I think what was holding me back was I was, in a sense, worshiping, assigning value to my freedom, that I could do whatever I wanted. I could, I could be whatever I wanted. I could do things. And, and, uh, and I knew that if I started following Christ, if I committed to Christ, that would change those things. Because some of them were hurtful things. Some of them were not good things. And I knew I would have to change. So in a sense, you know, we just talked about worship, assigning value, and then figuring out if I assign this value, what does that mean for my life? I assigned value to my freedom to do whatever I wanted. Because I figured that then if I could do whatever I wanted, then I would do what I could just do it. And I knew that if I committed to Christ, I would lose that, and I felt like I'd lose my freedom. What I've since found out is that it opened up a whole new world of freedom to me because what I realized was my freedom that I love so much 
had entrapped me. And it had caught, caused me to get into this, into this loop of terrible things that were hurting others and hurting me. And then when I wanted to stop doing those things, I couldn't stop doing those things because I was trapped. And then I came to Christ and he gave me real freedom to begin to break loose from those chains, to begin to break free from those things that had entrapped me. And so when we talk about worship, we have to understand we all do it. We're made to do it. It's, it's wired in us. We can't help it. We're going to worship. We just have to figure out what we're going to worship. So when we look at this passage, what it is is it opens up It shines light on this and shows us in a real-life person how this process takes place. Remember, Jesus has been talking to her, and and already they've they've had to go over a number of barriers. They'd have to go over cultural barriers, the hatred between Samaritans and Jews. They had to go over a gender barrier. She's a woman. He's a man. They're not supposed to talk. They they, They had to jump all these barriers to be able to have this conversation. And it's interesting, Jesus willingly broke those barriers down to have this conversation. He wanted to talk to her, and she was surprised by it, but she was willing to go along. And then he introduced to her this concept of living water, and she's having trouble understanding what living water is. He's talking about a spiritual thing that will will satisfy a thirst that's in her that can never be quenched, and this is the only thing that will do it. And she's she's struggling with this, and so uh, she finally says, well, just tell me where I find this water. You know, what's... And he realizes, I mean, Jesus knows everything. He realizes, okay, she's thinking so literally, she's not getting it. So he shifts tactics here. And so what we're going to first look at is, is he, this is the look in the mirror. Um, I, I thought of this because, you know, in James chapter 1, we're told, James tells us, the word of God is a mirror, and it tells us the absolute truth about ourselves. It doesn't disguise it. it doesn't, you know, the only thing, if you want to know how you really look, you got to look in a mirror. If you go to your friends and you say, you know, how do I look? And they'll say, oh, generally speaking, they'll, they'll kind of hedge it a little bit or whatever. And, and uh, husbands and wives know how this work happens all the time. And, and the, the mirror is going to tell you the truth. And if you get close enough, it's going to tell you the absolute truth, right? You can see everything so close when you, when you get close to a mirror. And so here Jesus, he's the living word of God. He's going to be the mirror for her. And, and we'll see how this happens because she's been thinking on a very physical level. And Jesus is laying this foundation to tell her, I can quench your deepest thirst, your thirst for love, your thirst for purpose, your thirst for meaning. And so now he's going to be the mirror and kind of shine the light on her life. And that's in verses 16 to 19. He says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. So we have this conversation where Jesus kind of changes tacks here. He kind of changes, changes his line of reasoning. And, and I love how this is so real even for us. Because if you look at this, think about what she just did. Because, oh man, this is so easy for us to do. Um, she, doesn't, she, she does what we all tend to do under pressure. That is, minimize our sin, or at least reveal the least amount of information that we can. Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. That's the truth. She told him the truth. But she didn't tell him the whole truth, right? It's technically true, but she's kind of withholding. She doesn't understand who she's dealing with. And Jesus' response, which I think, I think personally, and this isn't necessarily in Scripture. This isn't in Scripture. It's me. I think Jesus is kind of smiling, a little bit of a wry smile when he says, when he says to her, you know, you're right when you say you have no husband. Good. The fact is, and then he goes and lays it out. And he says, so what you've just said is quite true. Now, what is he doing? He just let her know, I know everything. I know the whole deal. I know what you just did. I know that. It's kind of like, you know, you're not going to pull one over me on this. It's like if you, if, if you have children or, or if you're older, when your children were little, sometimes they would try to deceive you, and they're so poor at it, they're so lousy at it, that you know right away they're lying. And it's kind of funny almost to see this little small person 
desperately try to shape the truth when you know exactly what they're doing. And it's like you're going, come on, come on. You got to get better at this, right? And, and here, the Greek word order is important because it shows emphasis. Uh, the first, uh, oftentimes the first thing said is what the emphasis is on. She says, I do not have a husband, kind of like saying, I'm all alone, right? And Jesus, he, he changed the emphasis to let her know that he knows. He says, you are right, the husband you do not have. And the way it's done is to emphasize the husband you do not have, but you're not alone. He changes, he, he says it in a way that emphasizes to her, I see what you're doing. You're right. You're right. Husband, you don't have right now. I got that. But there's a little more to the story, and he brings it out. Now, we do that, right? We shade the truth sometimes. Uh, a number of years, quite a few years, long time ago. Let me just say that. Long time ago. I was pulled over by a policeman, and uh, I was running out doing some stuff. I had to go to Lowe's, and I had to uh, pick up something somewhere, and then I had to run by Riverside Hospital to visit someone from our church who was in the hospital, right? So the policeman walks up, and he says, what's the hurry? Why are you driving so fast? Now, in that moment, with my list, I was tempted to say, I'm a pastor, I have to go to the hospital. Like life and death, right? But I was actually not on my way to the hospital. I was actually on the second one going to a grocery store. But that doesn't sound as good when a policeman asks you, why are you in a hurry, right? I'm going to the grocery store. But if you say I'm going to the hospital, now technically it's true, in the course of my day, I was going to the hospital. But I don't want to mention the other things beforehand because that ruins my reason for having to be in such a hurry. You see, we can do that. We can shade truth. I'm not even going to tell you what I said to him, all right? I don't want any judgment in this place. Because in verse 19, what happens? She realizes what's up. She says, okay, I can see you're a prophet. She goes, okay, I can see you have some sort of supernatural ability. You have looked right through my story and found the bottom line, Right? Jesus knows something about her that he would not naturally know. And this causes the conversation to take a whole new turn. You know, for all of us, because I think about this, if we look at this and we just look at it as a story, the key is we need to learn from it. We need to understand how it affects our lives. And I think about this. We get in conversations all the time with people. We get in conversations with people at home. We get in conversations with people at work, at school, at the grocery store, at the fast food place, wherever it may be. And what we have to do is we have to be aware of the fact that there are times, sometimes just in a normal conversation, when it can take a turn. And we just have to try to recognize that because sometimes that gives us opportunities to say something or do something that may uh, cause more of an impact in a person's life, spiritual impact in a person's life. Jesus, in this conversation, he's finding something they have in common. He starts talking about water. They're right by a well. He finds something they have in common, and then he looks for the chance to make that conversation turn. And we're at that turn. Wherever you're at, there will be chances, there will be opportunities to turn a conversation, to bring something up. And so now we're moving to the next level. And, and we have to be people who are observe, think about that. It doesn't always happen. In fact, most of the time it doesn't happen. But sometimes it does. And we want to be aware of it because those are God-given moments. Those are those, you know, we talk about the two different kinds of time, kairos, you know, and, and kairos is those moments, kairos time is those moments that have special meaning rather than chronos, which is just time, tick, 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 just regular old time. Kairos is a word used in the, in the New Testament that means occasionally there's a moment in time that has incredible potential for a person's life. And God says, I bring you kairos moments in the course of your life. Look for them. Look for them. And so here's one of those moments. She is now aware 
that there's more going on here than she realized. And she, and she, to her credit, I mean, this woman has been very open, very honest in a sense. For, for most of it, she's, she's been willing to, to converse with him, someone she would normally hate. And she says, I see you're a prophet. I see that. I acknowledge that you are special. Jesus has caused her to, in a sense, look at the mirror and face something. And the fact that he did that, she is now open to what he has to say. And so she continues. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is, this well is right by. You can still go there. The well is still there, and the mountain is still there. And they're right there. When, you, when you're near the well, this mountain kind of looms right over there. All right? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, okay, just let me just say this real quick. This is not a derogatory term. It sounds bad in English, but this is, this is something he used for his mother. This is something he used for people he cared about, for people he loved. This is a, a common way of expressing, in a sense, respect. It would almost be like saying, you know, favored person. It's, 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 very, it's, a, it's an uplifting word, not a tearing down word like it would sound in English, which it does sound in English. Uh, woman or favored lady. Jesus replied, that sounds weird too. Um, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So now we have... The word worship is used 10 times in this short little passage. We have suddenly an emphasis on a word that is just so overt, that is is so important. Jesus is, she mentions it and Jesus hammers it. He's gonna talk about worship and worship is a big deal to God. That's why this this is being said so much right here. She wants this prophet to answer a theological question. Where does true worship occur? to solve a theological dispute, a dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews, a dispute that has cost, some estimate, maybe thousands of lives and cross-border incursions and, 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 and attacks and murders. So she wants, to, she wants to know. Now, it may be she's kind of squirming about this whole thing about her past and background being revealed, so she wants to change the subject, or it may be that it's an honest question about worship or a little bit of both. We don't know for sure. But she's saying, hey, right there, that mountain, that's where we believe. You got Jerusalem, we got Mount Gerizim. So which is which? And, and so we want to talk about this now, this idea of worship and what it means. I mentioned a little earlier, the word worship comes from, in English, comes from the ancient English word worship, assigning value, deciding what to do with it or with your life once you assign value. The Greek word is prokoneo. I think I even... Put it up there for those of you that are very much interested, although the, the first P is not supposed to be there. Proskaneo, or proskanuo, it can be pronounced two different ways, is the Greek word for worship. Now, what does that word mean? Because this is important for us. We talk about coming and worshiping. We talk about the importance of worshiping together in corporate worship, which the Bible commands us to do. And we talk about the importance of worshiping in your work, worshiping in, in, in your studies, worshiping in your life in every aspect of your life. So what is it? Literally, the word means to, to, to prostrate yourself, right? Now, that's very key. It's not prostate, prostate yourself. It's prostrate yourself. What does that mean? It means you get down, and you may have seen this in, in some old movies and stuff like that, but it is this idea that you get down in front of someone or something of incredible value, and you bend over, open your hands, and then it's very key, you tilt your head down, you bare the neck. What does that say? What that says is, you open your hands. I have nothing. Oftentimes what they come is when one king has been defeated by another in, in a war. The defeated king comes in, gets down on his knees, puts his sword on the ground, and then pulls his hands back open, meaning I am no threat to you now. You have won. You own me. And then they bare the neck. You can kill me right now. You have that power. You have the power to kill me in this moment. That's what proskanuo means, and, and that's the original meaning of the word. And so it has this idea of a bent head, of a bared neck, of open hands, of being down on the ground, 
And it's saying to this person, you're in total control of me. You have my life in your hands, right? And that's literally what it means. It began to evolve even in the Greek, with the Greek language, to, to be this idea of recognizing someone or something of superior value, to reverence them, to respect them, to put things into perspective based on them. So this is, this is the idea of worship. This is why we come and worship God. We reverence him. We respect him. We think through. What's my perspective going to be now based on him? We come before him with open hands. I come with nothing, Lord. I have nothing I can give you that, that, it, that would change how you love me. I have nothing I can give you that can earn anything from you. It's all you. We bend our head down, in a sense, saying, Lord, you are you're the author of life, and you're the finisher. I am yours. This is what we're talking about when we talk about worship. I think about that in terms of the idea of that old English word of worth-ship, that is, assigning value to something, evaluating it. I don't know if you've ever watched, there's this NPR program called Antiques Roadshow. I love to watch it. I like to, well, I like to watch it. It's fun to watch. It's fun to people bring, see people bring in all their stuff. And some of it's, 90% of it's just junk. But they show you the stuff that's like really good stuff. And I, and I love that process, you know. And they say, well, where did you get this painting? And I say, well, I don't know. It's been in our family. Sometimes it's hung on the wall. Sometimes we just throw it in the attic because it's not that important to us. Well, this painting's worth $300,000. <gasps> no. And then comes the biggest lie that's ever uttered in the history of television. I will now so much more respect it while it hangs on my wall. That thing's not hanging on her wall, right? They get this. They get this, they're like, oh my goodness, right? And then <laughs> they, because it would seem so, you know, so low class to say, I'm going to sell it, you know? They say, oh, it's so good, I love it, I'll hang it, and we'll put it in a place where the whole family will see it, and everyone will see it. And as soon as the TV cuts to the next person, they're like, who wants this picture? 300 grand, give it to me right now, right? I mean, I think that's what's going on, honestly, when, they, when you see that kind of stuff. So that's what's going on. What happens there? What happens there? You come with something, eh, maybe it's worth something, maybe it's not. You find out it's worth a lot. And what happens if that happens in your life? You know, if you, if you, if you think about that. If somebody says, this painting that you just thought was something your grandparents gave you was painted by the French master, Inspector Clouseau. He painted that painting. That painting's worth $300,000. And you're like, oh my, yes, 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 right? Your entire attitude towards that painting now changes, doesn't it? Is that going back in the attic? (laughs) No, no. The first thing you can do is you're going to insure it. The second thing you're going to do is, you know, you're going to find some way of keeping it secure so the grandkids or your kids don't mess with it and throw up on it or something and ruin it, right? You do that. because And, and what happens? Suddenly, if you're talking to that art expert, you see the beauty. If you ever watch that show, what they do is they go, look, see these brush strokes? The, he invented these types of brush strokes. This is masterful. And you're going, that piece of, oh, the brush, I see it. You begin to see it. And you really do begin to go, wow. This is special. So you see the beauty in it. Suddenly, you're aware of the fact this is extraordinary. What's the second thing that happens? You see the value in it, right? This guy just told you 300 grand. And you realize the implication for your life if that's true. If I take a painting, he says 300 grand, I think, oh, what's the implications of my life? Here's the first implication, Mustang GT. That's the first accident. That's the first thing, you know. That's, that's where my mind was. You start thinking, what's the implication for my life? Oh, we're going to go away. We're going to Cancun, baby. You know, it's, that's what would happen. And so suddenly you see the beauty in it. The second thing is suddenly you realize the value of it and the implications of that value. Because what happens? That value is a power that you did not have before. You suddenly have tapped into it. And you just think, this is the word worship. Suddenly you've tapped into a new power you didn't realize you had. And you didn't do anything to create that power. That power has been given to you in the form of $300,000, right? And your behavior towards the painting changes, right? You don't stick it back in the closet. 
You don't sit there and go, yeah, I'll put it back. Here's 300 grand. I'll stick it where the mice are. No, you won't do that. You don't put it, you don't put it where your kids can touch it. You know, your kids, mom and dad, can we play with a $300,000 painting? No, right? You're not going to let them do that because now it's not just some painting. You don't treat it casually anymore. You put money into it even. You have it cleaned. You get an alarm system if you need, maybe think about it. You carefully box it up and you protect it from being damaged because suddenly you realize what it's worth. And your whole attitude changes you. What's happened? That art expert just led you in worship. He just caused you to see, or she just caused you to see value and to think through the implications of that value, to see beauty and how it will change your life to see how your behavior will now have to change because of that painting. That's worship. That's what's going on there. It makes you see. You know, you may have had that painting for years on your wall, sometimes in your attic, sometimes in the bedroom, sometimes wherever you, you happen to put it. You may not have thought it was that special. And suddenly it makes you see that there is a reality right here in the midst of your life that you did not recognize fully. That's what worship does. That's what worship does for us. So much of the time, we don't understand. We don't recognize the value of what we have in Jesus Christ. And so we don't have the right attitude towards it. We don't live properly in light of it. But when we begin to fill our mind with it, when we begin to be un- understand it, when we begin to worship, it leads to awe. It leads to joy. And that leads to change in behavior. And that's what worship is. And God is so much more than anything we could ever have in this life. We cannot stick him in the attic. He can't be there. He's worth too much. I mentioned before, a few weeks ago, we were talking about trying to grasp the enormousness of God and, and, uh, and of what he offers us. And it's because it changes our sense of proportion. Our sense of proportion drives what we worship because proportion is is assigning value. So if you're on Facebook Marketplace and you see some cheap little plastic house and there's a a little thing there saying $300 firm, you're like, what? $300 firm? I, I, I saw that at Walmart the other day for four bucks. That's ridiculous, right? Why? Because you, you know the value. And so the proportion is wrong. You, you spot that right away. Now, let's say you're riding your bike. You're going for a walk. You decide to, decide to go down. Sometimes uh, my wife and I have done this. We love to just ride down River Road. Just look at the beautiful houses there on the water. And you ride along, and some guy comes storming out of his house. And he goes, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. I will sell you my house for $300. I'll do it. I'll call the realtor right now. I'll sell you my house for $300. And what would you do? Oh, like somebody here is going, yeah, that happened. No. What would you do? You'd be like, I'm a little nervous, but yes, just in case, yes, I will. I will. Why? Because the proportion, you see, you know the value. And in proportion, this is incredibly small. Our sense of proportion drives what we worship. And giving up $300 for you or for me depends on what I see is the worth of the object I'm giving up $300 for. So oftentimes we face things that seem huge to us in our lives. Compared to what? This is the key. Compared to what? Is this huge? Compared to what? We have to do that. We have to understand that our sense of proportion is key here. The key is, what do you compare it to? The reality of God's care for you, the reality of God's love for you, the reality of God's provision for you. When these things become more real, everything else becomes smaller. You begin to go, I'm getting a mansion for 300 bucks. What a deal. You begin to see it. Worship enables us to put things in perspective. When we worship, We sang, and when you speak, and I'll probably get the words wrong, 100 billion galaxies are formed. 
That's the God who wants to be close to you. He wants to be intimately a part of your life. He wants to live with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to walk with you through everything you go through in your life, through the tragedies and through the triumphs. He wants to be there. The one who spoke and all the galaxies were formed in an instant. That gives us a sense of proportion. So that now, maybe, um, now I'm just, you know, just being real. Maybe somebody, and I should say this, this hasn't happened for a long, long time. Somebody sends me an email and says, you're a jerk. What made you think you could speak well? You misapplied the scripture. You're just terrible. And, you know, for a pastor, that's just can be, that can be devastating, right? That can be devastating. It's just one of those things you, and, and, Compared to what? Compared to what? God created 100 billion galaxies. One small, tiny speck says, I don't like you. And I go to pieces. Right? That's ridiculous. If I'm going to worship God, I've got to understand. And when I do, he becomes greater. That becomes less. All these things in your life. Now, look, that's a tiny thing. That's a tiny thing. I know there's people who've been through incredible tragedies. And so for me to say that becomes tiny, it, 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 it doesn't become tiny, but it becomes smaller compared to God because he's there and he's in the midst of it. And when we worship, it helps us put things in perspective. And so this woman is saying, she says, wow, you have this knowledge that seems supernatural. Um, almost like earlier when we looked at Nathaniel where Jesus said something, he goes, you're the, you're the Messiah, Right? She says, you're obviously a prophet. And she's obviously saying, I, thought my, I think my religion is correct, according to, but now I'm not so sure because you're a prophet and you're saying something different, right? And so, so what happens? She goes, so, so answer my question, where do we worship? And in verse 21, basically Jesus says, do, she says, do we worship on the mountain or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, neither, neither. That's not the point. He says, the hour is coming. He says, the time is coming in uh, Verse 21, woman, believe me, a time. It really, it says the time is coming. Now, and literally, I should, it says the hour is coming. Now, that's very key. Because in the book of John, when Jesus starts talking about the hour or my hour, he's talking about his death. When he gets ready to go into, he says, my, it's, my hour is here. Sometimes they, 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 uh, they translate it time, but the word literally is the hour, the moment, the kairos moment that's full, full of this incredible uh, power and meaning. And, and Jesus here is referring to that. I really believe this. He says, the hour is coming when you will worship. And then a little later, he says, and it's here. The hour is here. He's saying, I'm going to change this, me. And she understood that because the way he said it, she would understand that. He says, I'm going to change the whole worship deal. There, there, forget it. I don't know if Jesus went like that. I don't know that he did that. But he said, forget it. It's neither. It's neither. He used that phrase to refer to his death. Worship is not based on a place. It's based on a person, and that's him. So then in verse 22, you know, he doesn't shy away from the truth. He says, look, you guys got it wrong. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you guys got it wrong. You had that big split with the Jews thousands, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but you got it wrong. But now because of me, you're both wrong. Because it's not the location. And so Jesus is not afraid to tell the truth. We need to be people who tell the truth. We need to do it in love because he, he, he kind of totally infused this whole conversation with love. But we, but we got to be people who tell the truth. Now, that's where we struggle sometimes. We're good about telling the truth. We just don't do it in love. Got to do it in love. We got to be the people who want the truth, who can't shy away from the truth. And if we're wrong, we own it because the truth is what's important. And then in verse 23, he he, he talked about that. He says, look, it's not the location. It's the object that matters. What are you worshiping? That's the key. 
That's what matters most. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says, let us consider how we may spur on one another to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. He says, we need to be gathering together. And then now I know we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic and some people have to stay home and that's fine. But ultimately, ultimately, when we get back to some version of reality, God's command for us is to meet corporately. There's something special that happens when the people of God get together and worship together. And worship together. Before I was a Christian, a couple of times, no, a number of times, my mom dragged me to church after she had become a Christian. And I can remember sitting there and going, these people, what is going on with them? But I could see something was happening. There was something different going on that I'd never experienced before. And then, um, in verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. I love that. The Father seeks the worshipers. The God of this universe is seeking people. Seeking people. That's the kind of God he is. He doesn't sit up there and go, you know, which is what all the other gods did. Come to my temple. Give me stuff and maybe I'll bless you. Give me stuff and maybe I won't curse you. But come. God says, no, I'm I'm coming to you. That's what's so beautiful in the parable of the prodigal son. Is the prodigal son goes away Waste his father's money, waste his life, and finally changes, and he starts walking back. And it says the father sees him from afar off. Why? Why? Because he got, went out every day to the front porch and looked for his boy. And then when he sees them, what does he do? He runs to him. And that is such a cultural thing that a Jewish man would never do. Old men in, in Israel never ran. It was beneath them. It was unbecoming. It, it was just unheard of. So for Jesus to write that in there, not only did the father, was he looking, searching for the boy, he ran to him. He ran to him. I want you to know God ran to you at some point in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. He ran to you with open arms. That's how much our Father loves us. He searches for us diligently. I am so glad he's that way because I cursed him and told him to leave me alone. And I'm so glad our Heavenly Father said, no, I love you too much. I'm going to run you down. He kind of also said, I'm going to make your life hell until you turn to me. And that did it. Because he loves us. He seeks, he seeks his worshipers. So the Jews and the Samaritans, both groups, they were um, focused on external factors. They conformed outwardly to regulations. They observed rituals. Um, they offered the prescribed uh, sacrifices. But when the time came, the hour came, since the Messiah has come, the true worshipers would no longer um, be identified by where they worship. True worshipers were those who would worship the Father in spirit and truth. And we can, be, we can fall into that trap. We can, it's so easy for us to begin to look at outward things and to judge on external factors. It's like when God told in the Old Testament Samuel the prophet to go, to go anoint a king. What did he do? He went to the biggest, tallest, strongest guy of the sons of David. He said, this has got to be the guy because this guy can kick anybody's butt. And that's one of the main requirements for being a king back then. You got to be able to kill people, right? And so you got to be him. And God says, no, not him. Okay, second biggest, right? Not quite as big. Maybe he's real quick, you know? Nope, not him, not him, not him. And finally, he says, you got any more sons? And, and it's almost, in, 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 literally in the Hebrew, it's almost like saying, well, there's the runt. There's the little one. And David comes in, God goes, that's the one, the one that can't pick up the first one's sword. That's the one I want. Why? Because God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward things. God looks at the heart. When we worship in spirit and truth, the key is our heart. This is where this is happening. We become enamored with strength and power and looks, but God looks at the heart. And worship involves that because it's the core of us. 
It's the key. It's not traditions. It's not rituals. It's not the place. It's our spirit. And yes, God does want us to gather together in corporate worship at least once a week because something special happens in that. But it's not that it's this building that makes it, makes it special. This building only facilitates the worship that happens when the people come here. The building is not special. And we're supposed to worship in truth. What is that? That's recognizing God for who he is and recognizing myself for who I am. Being honest about who God is, being honest about who I am. That's worshiping in spirit and in truth. You know, when the story, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee when he worshiped at the temple and he saw the tax collector, the hated traitor, the person who had turned on the Jews, and he had the gall, he had the gall to walk into the Jewish temple and worship like he was just another, he was another holy, uh, righteous Jew person, and yet he, he was a traitor. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you. I'm not like him. And what happened there? What happened? He didn't recognize, the Pharisee didn't recognize who he was. He didn't recognize who God was. He thought he was better. And the whole point of that parable, Jesus says, is the one who walked away, the one who walked away righteous was the traitor, the tax collector. That's the one who walked away righteous. Now, we can look at that and say, that Pharisee got his theology so wrong. What a jerk. And what do we do when we say that? We're the Pharisee. And we're looking down on that guy. That's what happens. We can't be those people. We see God for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are. That makes us humble so that we become people who are loving and graceful to other people. Even the people in the flesh we would hate, we can become loving and graceful towards because we see God and we see ourselves as we are. We are in a continual battle not to be the Pharisee in our lives. So, the look in the mirror, the question of worship, and then the life-altering declaration. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, the Samaritans believed the Messiah was coming. Based on a number of passages, um, Deuteronomy 18 has a passage about this coming one who will speak the truth of God and heal the nations or heal people bring healing into their land. They believed he would restore true worship. They called him the Tahib, uh, was the Samaritan word they used for him. And it means the restorer and the teacher. You know, it's kind of interesting. This woman had a better idea of what the Messiah would be than the Jews did. The Jews thought he'd be a big politician who would declare war and kill people to forcibly bring back the nation of Israel. The Samaritans said, no, he's going to be a restorer. He's going to be a teacher. He's going to come, and he's going to heal our land. That's what they believed. And so she says, look, when he comes, he'll answer all these questions. And Jesus says in verse 26, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, sometimes I want to explain this a little bit in the Greek. And sometimes I, I, it sounds like I'm correcting the translators. I, I don't mean to be correct. I understand how incredibly difficult it would be to be a translator. This, this English is, is kind of difficult right here. If you, if, when you read it, you kind of go, that's a weird way, almost like Yoda. I am he. You know, it's, it's a little different way of reading it, of, of writing it. But here's the thing. It's way more difficult in the Greek. It's even more difficult to read in the Greek. And the reason is because Jesus is making a claim. He's using a title. He's using a name in that. All right? So that, so that um, uh, actually in... In the English, it would, it would say something more along the lines. I tried to translate it a little better, and I'm trying, trying to remember where I put that. I don't know. Um, it would be more like Jesus said this. I am is me. All right? Now, when the translators translate, what they have to think is we want to make the Bible available to all the masses. And so that I am is he doesn't make any sense unless you know your Old Testament. Because who is the I am? Moses at the burning bush said, God, what is your name? And he told them, tell them that I am sent you. I am in Hebrew just means the one who exists. Just exists. 
And God says, that's my name. The Greek for that is ego ami, I am. So what's happening here is Jesus proclaimed himself God. I am is me. I am is the one who's talking to you. And that doesn't make a lot of sense in English, so they tried to, you know, the way they did, they tried to make it make more sense. But to someone who knows the first five books of the Bible, which the Samaritans and the Jews know, they know exactly what just got said. Jesus just said, I'm Yahweh. Yahweh is speaking to you. What an incredible statement, right? We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to her, that's life-changing right there. That's life-changing. The God of the universe has now is standing in front of me and speaking to me and asking me for water? Incredible. It's an astounding declaration. Moses, at the burning bush, was introduced to this God, Yahweh, whose name literally means, I just exist. No beginning, no end. I just am. Jesus stands in front of a Samaritan woman, not that far, and says, that's me. You say the Messiah is coming? Messiah's name is Yahweh, and it's me. Hi. Can you imagine? It's unbelievable. The God of the universe just spoke to her. And so this is an astounding declaration. It changes everything. We talk about worship. This is, this, is, this is who we worship, and we have to be people of worship. We have to be people who are willing to come to God and see the truth of who he is. We're, we have to be people who come to God and see his worth. People who give him think, give him our grudges, give him our bitterness, give him our idols, give him our resources, give him our time, give him ourself. What else makes sense? Nothing else makes sense. If you're talking to the creator of the universe, you're on your hands and knees with your hands open and your neck bowed saying, I'm, to- I'm yours. I'm just, you just do with me what you want. Because if I'm going to assign worth, we're talking about the greatest, worthiest thing, person, being in the whole universe. Nothing else will do. You know, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is given this vision of God and of heaven. And, and, and he immediately goes, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. He says, I'm a worthless person. I, you know, I'm a wretched man, he says. And God cleanses him. He cleanses him. It's like, very much like our salvation experience in some ways. And then God is talking to, in heaven, and he's saying, I have something I need done. Who's going to do it? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Why? Because I've, deci- I've decided to assign worth here. I realize you are so much above me that I, I'm nothing, and yet you love me so much you cleansed me. There's nothing you can ask me that I would say no to. And if you read that, God says, okay, you're going to go to these people and they're not going to like what you say. And they're going to treat you badly and they're not going to listen to you and they're going to tell you you're crazy and they're going to, it's going to be a tough time. And I say, it's like, compared to what? Compared to what? Compared to you, that's nothing. What can they do to me? Compared to you, that's nothing. Here am I. Send me. God, send me. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so for us, we gather, we worship, not just here, on our own, at work, wherever we're at. And what are we doing? We are assigning worth to things. And God says, I'm the top. Everything else finds its place under me. Don't let something get above me, because then you've got an idol and it has to be dealt with. And that's what we do. We worship. And we worship in so many different ways. I mean, I don't don't usually... For people who come, I, I don't like to put guilt trips on people. I don't like to sit there. But one of the things I think about is that, you know, COVID-19 has changed everything. And, and it's turned everything upside down. And, and we've had distance between people. You know, I, I got my second shot two weeks ago. And now, I mean, I, I can hug my grandkids. It's the greatest thing in the world. And, and, and my daughter and my kids. And, uh, 
and we're moving to where now church is going to start going back and even maybe uh, hopefully better than it was. We're going to start more and more small groups want to get started, and we need people who are be willing to be a part of a small group or even lead a small group. Um, our, our, our children's church and our nursery is growing. We, we need help there. Our, our youth group is beginning to grow. We could use, and, and uh, we're going to go back now and start having a, a welcome team. We need, we're going to start needing more help there. Um, we're foreseeing, we really think the signs are there that we will grow in significant ways so that maybe within the next six months to a year, we're going to start having two services try to accommodate everybody that wants to come. And we're going to need help. We're going to need help in a lot of ways. And we need people who are willing to say, okay, God, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. And, and I'm not saying sign up today. I'm saying be thinking about how God wants to use you in the life of this church or maybe somewhere else. I mean, it may be somewhere else. And if it is, it's okay with me. I just want you to serve God. That's, that's all. And so we have this opportunity now. We worship. We see God for who he is. We assign worth. And when, as soon as you assign worth to something, the implication is, how will you change? What will happen? What's going to happen in my life because of the worth that I've assigned to this God who created the universe and yet came and died for me? How am I going to assign worth there? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it thrills us. It convicts us. It brings us to tears. It makes us laugh with joy. So much involved in studying your word. And this morning, as we look at this woman, God, we see in the next part of this passage how her life radically changes. And we know from history that the radical changes spread in that area, that you used her to evangelize thousands and thousands of people. And so, Lord, we want to be that person. God, we want to be that person. And we struggle sometimes with letting other things get in the way. But, God, I want to. I know we, people here, we want to be used by you. We want to see people's lives change through you and, and, and through your use of us. And so we say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Now, God, as soon as I say that, I'm afraid you're going to ask me something I don't want to do but I want to say it anyways. And for everyone here, Lord, um, give us the courage to assign the proper worth to you and allow the changes to take place that have to come because of that. And we are always, always, always quick to tell you, thank you. We give you the glory, Lord, because you're a good God. In Jesus' name, amen.